This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. We are answering your Bible questions on Line Upon Line. The we is me and Eric Flickinger, It Is Written's associate speaker. Eric, glad you're here today. Got some more good questions. Good questions. Uh, I'm going to throw the first question to you. All right. In fact, just before I do that, let me tell you, if you have a question and you'd like us to answer that question, email it to us. Go on. Line up online at IIW.org. Line up online at IIW.org. That question will come to us and we will answer your question on Line Upon Line. Question is from Wellesley as we begin, Eric. Why are there so many denominations? Wellesley, that's a great question. Well, we know that Jesus didn't intend for there to be many denominations. He got his church together with 12 individuals and they had the truth. They were sharing it. Down through time, some human traditions and teachings found their way in until we get down into the Dark Ages and things were just a mess. You've got to really say because the devil went after the church. He went after the church and attacked the church and split the church. But today, if I can put it like this, the church is kind of on autopilot on its course to destruction. We just argue with each other and start new churches. Don't like the pastor's wife or the way she plays the piano, start a new church. Figure it's a good way to make money, start a new church. There are lots of reasons today why there are so many denominations. But I really believe that what you touched on is a very important point. Errors came into the church, right? They did. You get down to about the Middle Ages and then light started coming into the church. And what happened as the light started to shine? As light started to shine, what you find is there were great Christian leaders, individuals who wanted to follow the Bible and they uncovered bits and pieces of truth. As they did, you might say they started climbing out of that pit of darkness. But then as different Christian leaders got to particular levels of understanding of light, if you will, uh, many times they died. And then those who chose to follow them up to that point didn't seek for any further light. And so you have a lot of wonderful Christian leaders whose hope would have been for their followers to keep moving, but they didn't. Mm. So, well, I, I'm, I'll avoid naming denominations because I don't, just don't want to. But uh, Christian leader X came this far and his followers congregated around him and said, thank God for the new light, but didn't press on to discover more light. You know, that ought to be a hallmark of our experience as Christians. We press forward, finding as much light as we can so we can follow Christ in all of the light, by the grace of God that shines out of the pages of his word. Eric Walter asks the question, if the Bible says that the seventh day is the Sabbath, I look at the calendar and the seventh day varies from calendar to calendar. Sometimes it's Saturday, sometimes it's Sunday. How do I know? There are several ways that we can find that from the Bible. One of them is going back all the way to creation. The Bible describes God creating the earth in six days and then resting on the seventh day. Well, which day is the seventh day? How can we figure that out? Look at Luke chapter 23. It's the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In Luke chapter 23, we find in verse number 52, speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed afterward, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then in chapter 24, verse 1, it says this, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So we have three different days that are described there. There is the preparation day, there is the Sabbath, and then what the Bible calls the first day of the week. So if we want to figure out which day the seventh day is, it's not hard to figure out what the first day of the week is here because that's the day that Jesus rose from the tomb. And Christians pretty much universally say, you know what, that day is Sunday. Go backward one day, you'll find the seventh day of the week. That's the Bible, Bible Sabbath, and it's the day we call today Saturday. Not too hard to find. Now, today what you find is some modern calendars put Saturday as the sixth day of the week and Sunday as the seventh day of the week. Well, that's because in Western society, at least, and in most societies, what's the week? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, six, Sunday, seven. That's just conforming the calendar to human lifestyles. It's not a faithful representation of the actual days of the week. This is a question with a little bit of a difference. It's from Anne, and I'm going to read to you what Anne wrote to us. She said, God made a choice to send Jesus. Jesus made the choice to honor God. How much more do we have to be reminded and pay for the rest of our lives? Now here's where it gets a little easier to follow. I'm grateful for what was done for me, but I did not ask to be created with all the stuff I've been through. I've been so let down and disappointed. Sorry to hear that, Anne. So God created the earth. Yes, he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and you are their great-great-granddaughter. You did not ask to be here. It's true, and it's evident, at least it sounds like you've had a tough go of things. You haven't specified what, but my heart is with yours, and I'm sorry. What I would be reluctant to do, if I were you, is to cast everything aside because you've had some tough experiences. You know something about God. You know that he created. You know that he sent Jesus to this earth. I want to ask you what he did that for. And now I want to ask you who he did that for. For God so loved Anne that he gave his only begotten son that if Anne believes in him, she will not perish, but she will have everlasting life. I'm sorry that your life has been challenging at times. So has mine. So has Eric. So has the next person you see. Perhaps we haven't all walked the same road and maybe you're carrying some really heavy stuff. But God can get you through. Jesus is your savior and he's your friend. Jesus is in heaven now preparing a mansion for you. Don't be discouraged. Life sometimes deals you a really rough hand. It seems like some people, they get all aces. It seems like the rest of us, we get nothing. Why is that? Look, we don't understand. But I fear that the devil's plan is being validated in your experience. Satan wants to discourage you, wants to lead you away from faith in God. How has he done that? Simply by bad experiences. It doesn't sound like you've 
run away from God, left the church, got strung out on substance abuse so that it's hard for you to find your way back. Seems like you have a working knowledge of God, but difficulties have come into your life. Don't let those push you away from God. Just don't. You know that God is good and that God is love. He has a perfect plan for your life. Embrace God. Let me say this. Paul wrote about our light affliction being but for a moment, being but for a moment. You hold on to the hand of God. He'll get you through whatever you're in the midst of. When Jesus comes back, you're going to forget about the darkness of this earth. And that's not far away. So, Anne, hang in there with Jesus. He will certainly hang on to you. Eric. We've got a question here from Delia. And she says, some of my friends have uh, asked questions about King James and whether we can really trust the Bible since it was brought together by him. So give us a little background on King James and how we got the Bible. A really good question. You know, back, 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 there were no Bibles floating around. Not floating around, there were some in existence, usually in monasteries, and they were accessible by precious few. There was a wonderful Bible translator. His name was William Tyndale. He was a great man of God. He was executed because he dared to translate the Bible. Around this time, frankly, a little bit after the death of Tyndale, some scholars petitioned the king. His name was King James. Churchmen, they petitioned the king, allow us to translate the Bible. And the king said, you may. And he had a Bible placed in churches throughout Britain. King James didn't translate the Bible. The only thing that he had to do with it was he was the monarch when the Bible was translated. The Bible was very, very, very carefully translated by a team of scholars. Certain teams would be commissioned to translate this section of the Bible. When they were done, they'd give it to another team who would check it for accuracy. What's really interesting is that the vast majority of the King James Bible is simply Tyndale's translation. His translation was just so excellent. 70 plus percent of the Old Testament and 80, 85 percent of the New is essentially the same as what Tyndale translated. But here's what we've got with translating the Bible. Lots and lots of old manuscripts. I was in a museum in Manchester in England. In fact, there was a library, but it served the same purpose. And on display, there's a little fragment of John 18 or something like that. And they say it's from about 125 AD. How they know, I don't know, but let's agree that they know for the purpose of this. So that would make it, oh my goodness, 1900 years old. And that little fragment, what I think is John 18, but it could be remembering incorrectly, reads pretty much exactly the same as what I hold in my hands right now. Fascinating. There are so many old ancient manuscripts of the Bible extant that modern translations, I say, well, the King James, today's translations, can be compared to the old translation so we know that what we're reading today hasn't got way away from the Bible. That's a really important thing. The King James Bible wasn't translated by King James. He simply gave permission. They named it in honor of the monarch. That's how things were. And it is a good, solid, accurate translation. I'm not trying to tell you it is perfect, but when it comes to Bibles, this one's about as close to perfect as any other Bible you are going to find. You can trust a good translation of the Bible today. It's God's book. He gave it and he has preserved it. He has preserved it down through the ages. We've got another great question here. This one from Jane. And Jane says, I recently read a book that talked about New Jerusalem in the third heaven. What is the third heaven? I don't think I've ever heard of it before. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul talks about a man who was caught up to the third heaven. We believe he's writing about himself, the third heaven. That would be heaven where God lives. You could say the second heaven. You could say the Bible doesn't. The Bible refers to where the stars are as heaven. Let's call that the second heaven. And then the Bible refers to where the birds fly as being heaven as well. Three heavens. Where the birds fly, heaven, after a fashion. Where the stars are, heaven, if you please. And then where God lives, heaven, the real heaven. That's the third heaven being referred to in the Bible. Terrific questions. Thank you for them. We have more, so don't go away. And if you'd like to get a question to us, listen to what Eric's about to tell you. You can email us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Those questions will come directly to us and we will answer them for you. Lineuponline at iiw.org. And there will be more Line Upon Line in just a moment. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg, and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. While you're familiar with the It Is Written television program, I want to invite you on a journey to understand more about what It Is Written is doing to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We're going to visit India, Mongolia, Guatemala, Moldova, Zimbabwe, the Philippines, and more. Work made possible by It Is Written missions. It Is Written mission teams regularly visit parts of the world where the need for Jesus is great. It might sometimes seem like a hopeless task, a mission impossible, except that it isn't. It cannot be. This is mission possible because Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. If you can't go there yourself, you can be there with It Is Written. Mission Possible. Watch now on itiswritten.tv. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written is a faith-based ministry, and it's your support that makes it possible for us to share God's good news with the entire world. Your tax-deductible gift can be sent to the address on your screen or through our website, itiswritten.com. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Our toll-free number is 800-253-3000, 800-253-3000. Our web address is itiswritten.com. Thanks for being part of Line Upon Line today. This program is brought to you by It Is Written. It is presented by Eric Flickinger and by John Bradshaw. We are delighted that you've joined us and we want to encourage you to get 
your Bible questions to us by email. The Wonders of Technology, line upon line at iiw.org is the address. You write your question to us. If we know how to answer it, we will. If we don't, we'll shrug and let you know that we don't know what to do about that question. That doesn't happen very often. It happens. It doesn't happen very often. So do get your question to us. We'll do our very best to answer it from a biblical point of view. Eric, what is the question we're wrestling with now? We have a question now from Julie, and Julie asks the question, she says, what if I'm in debt when Jesus comes back? Will that keep me out of heaven? Well, Julie, salvation is not by debt freeness, at least not the last time I checked in the Bible. Is it good to be debt free? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith, not by paying our debts. There's something else that we would add, and that is this. The Bible says there's coming a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. If you owe somebody a ton of money, then you know that they're not just going to shrug and say, well, off you go and forget your debt. It'd be a difficult time to face debts. So you want to plan well, you want to live wisely and keep this in mind. You will keep in close contact with God. God will let you know when it's time to get out of debt or not to get in debt if you are keeping this before him. I like what Eric said. Don't be thinking that it's debt that's going to keep you out of the kingdom. The answer is no. But what we would say is you ought to manage debt really wisely. Think about the times in which we live. Be prudent and keep this in front of God. It's really important that you do so. All right, we have a question here, and the question comes from, let me find it, from Eric. Hopefully, I'll be able to answer my own question. Let's see. A question from Eric. All right, Eric. The question from Eric is, since God did not name any day, we know he numbered them. How can one be certain that Saturday is the seventh day and not the first or the second day? I need to explain this to my daughter. All right, Eric. Eric's got an answer for you. Uh, The short answer that I'm going to give is in Luke 23 and Luke 24. We read about Joseph of Arimathea going to the cross, taking the body down, laying it in the tomb. He rests there for a day, and then Jesus rises again on Luke 24 and verse number 1. What it says is the first day of the week. So we see a progression of days. We've got the preparation day, then the Sabbath day, then the first day of the week. It's pretty easy to tell from the day of the resurrection. That would be what we often refer to as Easter Sunday that the first day of the week is Sunday, the day before would be Saturday. But how else do we know? Is there any other additional ways that we can know what day the seventh day is versus the first day versus the third day? One really good way to know is the languages of the world. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 plus languages of the world in existence today, if we don't count all the dialects and so forth. But in over half of those languages, the day, the name of the day of the week that we today refer to as Saturday is Sabbath. Take, for example, Spanish, Sabado. You have Russian, Subota. You have Tagalog, uh, the language of the Philippines, Sabado again. Uh, over and over again, the name of the day of the week is Sabbath. Kiswahili, Sabato. Italian, Sabato, as opposed to Sabado in Espanol. That's, that's one really good way of knowing. In fact, in one Scandinavian language, the word for Saturday is Lerdag, Lord's Day. I find that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Then you have beyond that, the Jewish people. Uh, it would be very difficult to lose track of what day the biblical Sabbath is because you have so many Jewish people living around the world. They've been keeping track of the, the Sabbath for thousands of years. And for them to forget 
Well, every one of them would have to fall asleep at the same time, sleep 24 hours, wake up at the same time, and never realize that they'd lost a day. So it's not going to happen. Biblically, it's easy to tell. Languages of the world, very easy to tell. You have uh, the Jewish people, very easy to tell. And uh, you even talk with uh, groups like the, uh, the U.S. Naval Observatory or the Royal Astronomical Society. Their job, they exist to keep track of time. Ask them if the days of the week have been changed. They'll say no. What Eric is asking too is, how do we know they put the name Saturday on the seventh day? Forget about the, the, the names of the days, just the numbers of the days. The one that we call Saturday happens to be the seventh day of the week. It could be called any old thing you like. Don't worry too much about that. The day that we call Saturday is day number seven in the weekly cycle, and you can be confident about that. By the way, you don't have to take our word for it. Do your own research, study, go to the library. There's this thing called Google, but you can't always believe what you read there. Nevertheless, uh, hunt where you can, and uh, you'll, you'll, God will lead you, and he's going to make that very, very clear to you. Gordon asks a question, and the question is, John 3.13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, the Son of Man which is in heaven. The question is this, does this mean that Jesus was in heaven at the same time as he was on earth, as indicated by the last part of the verse? Yeah, good question here. Eric, do you have that verse to read for us? John 3, 13. John 3 and verse number 13 says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Yeah, Jesus is telling us here, no human being has been up to heaven. The only person who has been to heaven and come down from heaven is Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, you could say, Elijah and Moses, very different circumstances. Jesus is speaking about the people here on the earth. As for anybody here, no, no, no one's been there and come back down, only me. The passage isn't indicating that Jesus was in two places at the same time. Sometimes we can overthink Bible verses. Probably best simply to take this one as it reads. Jesus is saying the only person who's been up there and come back down here to talk about it is Jesus himself. Good question. And we have a question from Joy. Joy's question is, what does this passage mean? Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53. I didn't think anybody rose from the grave until Jesus' second coming. Yeah, that's a good question. This is a wonderful passage. I can't wait, I can't wait to have Eric read this for us. Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53. It says, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So it sounds like there was a, a special resurrection here that took place around the time of Jesus' crucifixion, a, a first fruits, maybe, if you will, of, of what would come in the future when Christ raised the vast majority of the righteous. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So Jesus dies, the Messiah dies. If somebody died in your town in very public circumstances and the local graveyard opened up and people started coming up out of the graves very much alive, they'd been resurrected, wouldn't you be questioning what had taken place? That resurrection should have made a believer out of everybody in Jerusalem, but it didn't. I wonder what people were telling each other as they drank their beverages, as they sat around in the, the cool of the evening. How were they explaining this to each other? 
Oh, no, no, there's nothing out of the ordinary. It was simply... You'd have to willingly have your eyes absolutely completely sealed shut not to see that this is incredible. Now, there's another passage to look at. That was Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53. And now Joy wants to ask about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. You know something, line upon line, we get some, some subjects that come up again and again and again, which tell me... We've had two questions about the timing of the Sabbath already today. Tells me this is a popular question. This is a question we have answered before, probably more than once. First Peter chapter 3, 19 and 20, the spirits who went to the prison to preach. Was it Jesus before or after the resurrection? Let's take a look at these and we're going to read them through very carefully because the context is going to tell us exactly who this represents. Verse 19, it says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So whatever this was, it happened in Noah's day. All right. And it says also here, By whom he also went and preached to the spirits. The question is, the who, who's the whom here? We go back to verse number 18. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And then it says in verse 19, by whom? So the verse 19 is referring to the Spirit. Christ preached through the Spirit Mm -hmm. to individuals who were in the bondage of sin back in the days of Noah, trying to encourage them to get on board the ark. That's right. And the vast majority didn't do it. Mm, 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 mm. All right, one last question. Anna says, is it okay to celebrate birthdays? Is it okay to celebrate birthdays? In the Bible, we read about birthdays being celebrated. I can think of two notable times. Herod was celebrating his birthday and he was struck dead. Mm. And Pharaoh celebrated a birthday and there was nothing very special about that from a spiritual point of view. So the fact that God struck dead Herod on his birthday, what does that have to do with celebrating his birthday? Absolutely nothing. Herod took to himself the glory that he should have deflected to God or given to God. The fact that he died on his birthday doesn't mean that you shouldn't celebrate your birthday. No, you shouldn't get drunk. You shouldn't, you shouldn't eat like a pack of horses. You shouldn't spend money that you don't have to spend. You shouldn't go into debt. But what we're simply talking about is responsibility. And that applies to any day of the week, to any person. I've heard it said about birthdays and that we shouldn't celebrate them, but I've never heard it said in the Bible. Have you? Haven't come across it yet. I haven't come across that. Do you you think it's inappropriate to celebrate a birthday? I can't see anything inappropriate about it at all. I mean, I used to look forward to birthdays more than I do these days. In fact, these days, I kind of just wish they'd slip on by. But, uh, but birthdays are great to, to reflect on the fact that God has granted you another year of life. Amen. Celebrate that. Celebrate God's goodness. You can do that every day. Nothing we find in the Bible speaks against celebrating birthdays. Have a good time. By the way, if it's your birthday today, let me wish you happy birthday. If you'd like to get a question for us at Line Upon Line, Eric will tell you the email address to email us at email us at lineuponline at iiw.org. We will get your questions and we will answer them to the best of our ability on what the Bible has to say. Thanks so much for joining us on Line Upon Line today. We're looking forward to seeing you again with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. God bless you.